Not Common Sense, a podcast created to help you cut through the crap and feel confident in your finances. Get ready to be a money savvy genius because you're about to receive the financial education you've always needed. In today's episode, we're talking to co-founder Daniel Eberhard about how big banks in Canada function primarily as businesses who put all of their efforts into profits rather than their customers. But there are other options out there that won't make you pay for your own money. Hi, Daniel. How's it going? Awesome. Great. Thank you for having me. I'm how are so you? Excited. Good, good. Excited to talk to the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, that sounds like entirely too much hype, but, but I'll try. <laughs> Well, Daniel has built his career as an entrepreneur by finding ways to create scalable, mission-driven companies. In 2010, he co-founded Kineticor Renewables, a wind energy company that developed $50 million in wind projects. In 2014, Daniel co-founded Coho, the leading Canadian challenger bank, which has raised more than $130 million on the path to democratizing access to the best financial products. I would love to hear a little bit about your story, Daniel. What led you to founding a fintech company? Yeah, so mostly being a slow learner, uh, <laughs> when I when we started the the wind energy company, you know, and we got lucky, and and you know, also obviously worked hard too. Um, but after that, I swore that I was never going to get into like a heavily regulated industry again. Um, and then so I said technology is like where I want to play because it's more of a meritocracy and it goes faster and it requires a lot less capital um, and ended up, you know, finding my way through technology back into the world of banking, which is obviously, again, very heavily regulated. Um, I, I A couple things were part of my journey after we sold the, the company. Um, for the first time in my life, I had a little bit of money and started asking myself, like, what do what do people do with money? Because as you and I know, it's it's not uh, taught, let alone well taught, in terms of how to think about you know some really core financial concepts. And so, mm -hmm. you know, started sort of self educating myself, and I think fairly quickly realized that the financial products and the financial things that we pick are are super, you know, asymmetrical in terms of like it takes just as much work to be in a great financial product as it does a shitty one. Are we allowed to swear on this? <laughs> Let's find out. It's our podcast. We can do it. Um, exactly. It takes just as much work to be in a great one or a bad one. And yet the returns and the impact on people's lives are totally different. And yet the vast majority of people are in bad financial products. Um, and then, you know, there's kind of a couple very specific things that, that impacted me. And one of them was, yeah, you know, I, in doing this, I ended up looking at my mom's investment portfolio, my mom, you know, single mom. And, you know, we lived a middle-class life, which is a very lucky thing, but, you know, she had to work really hard doing menial jobs to, to give us that middle-class life. And she was in all these bad financial products. She was in financial products. So we're going to grow 30, 40% of her retirement. And there was just an enormous amount of daylight for me between like how hard she'd worked and the amount of value that was being extracted uh, they just didn't need to like it, you know, there's a term in finance called rent seeking, which is basically uh, the notion that you are extracting value without delivering any value. And I think that's what the great majority of financial products do. Um, the second kind of really specific thing was I asked 10 of my friends for the last three months of bank statements when I was really thinking about starting Coho and my brother gave me his and, you know, he, you know, had paid $85 in bank fees in three months and he didn't know it. And so you know, I'm, I have a brother and a mom, like that's my family. And so they were both like, you know, the really obvious. And I think uh, examples of, of what is systemically the case in Canada. 
And so coho is really the manifestation of what would what would a better outcome and, and maybe just a more consumer aligned organization look like. Mm -hmm. I love that. That is such a cool story. Um, and I definitely commend you for actually like taking the effort to change an industry that has been this way for like hundreds of years, I feel like. Uh, so what was it like trying to take on this huge initiative of changing the traditional banking experience? Yeah, well, it's, I, it's not, it's not a what, it's an is, like, we're still, um, we, you know, we've come a long way, but we've got a really long way to go. I mean, I think it's, it's a couple things. One, it's like, it's really rewarding because we get messages every day from folks who like are on a different financial path and it doesn't take that much work. You know, it's, it's not, it's not like hard or only available to certain people. It's just, you know, what we talk about is like how, you know, Coho exists to democratize wealth creation in Canada. And so, um, you know, so, so there's parts of it that are wonderful. There's parts of it that are really challenging. There's parts of it that are really silly. Like Canadian regulatory framework is uh, super imperfect. Um, and, you know, I think part of the knock-on effects of, of the way that we banked in Canada for a long time is like, there's just a great deal of apathy and frankly, a great deal of um, people not understanding the implications of just, you know, being in the right financial product. And the right financial product is the same for 90% of people, you know, what I mean? like it's, 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 you can standardize a lot of the value here. Um, and just, you know, but if you ask 20 Canadians where they bank, they'll say the place that their parents bank, you know, they, it's not a competitive financial process. It's not like a, we, we spend more time thinking about shoes than we do financial products, you know. <laughs> That's so true. We, I think I definitely put a lot more thought into, yeah, where to purchase my next outfit than where to bank. That's so yeah, true. Totally. And disrupting or at least trying to change an entire industry is obviously not easy, but I'm really glad to see that those traditional ways of banking are being challenged. And I definitely feel like both 2020 and 2021 have been all about challenging systems. So this is right on trend. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we, it's, 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 it'll be interesting to see how the banks react, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, 20, like a lot of folks moving online and that was all like good for us and the business grew, you know, a lot last year. Um, but this also forced the bank's hand. Like the, the banks are notorious for being really apathetic in Canada and, you know, some macro giant macro event like this probably accelerated their technology in ways that it never otherwise would have, you know? So it probably makes the market more competitive for us long-term. Mm -hmm. Let's start off our conversation by talking about big banks. What do we mean when we say that? Yeah. So in Canada, um, there's like six banks who have 95% of the accounts, uh, either directly or through their subsidiaries and about 95% of what banks call AUM, but it means assets under management. So it's ultimately for the dollars that Canadians keep in their account. Um, so we have like one of the most heavily centralized banking systems in the world. And these, some people say five big banks, some people say six, uh, but these are the, the big banks. Yeah. The fact that we can like list them all like with our fingers is kind of crazy. <laughs> so I've read a few other interviews you've done um, and you mentioned a personal financial ecosystem before and big banks have been a part of that ecosystem so far, right? So how do they fit into our lives? Uh, so I think that banking in Canada is, is a commodity. Um, and what I mean by that is it's completely standardized. Um, and I think that it's, it's universal and the banks are not like to be really explicit, the banks are not bad people. There's lots of things that are good about Canadian banks. Like, you know, um, in, in Canada, like 97% of people have a bank account. 
um, which is really good. And mm -hmm. not a lot of countries can boast that. And that's a really wonderful thing. It's a super imperfect thing because the vast majority of those folks are dramatically uh, underserved, I think, by those bank accounts. And, you know, um, so, so, you know, to your question, I think that uh, this, this banking is just like a very basic utility in terms of the role it plays in people's lives. Mm -hmm. So I've, I feel like it's really easy to think of banks as just a place where our money lives. I know growing up, that's what I, I always thought of it um, and lose the perspective and lose the perspective that they're actually profit-driven businesses um, and that they make their profit by being that intermediary between us and our money. So let's talk about the pros and cons of that because I don't think it's something that millennials actively think about every single day. If, if you think about, like if we just pick a credit card de department at a bank, right? a credit card department every quarter or every fourth of the year mm -hmm. will show you, will have to publicly declare how much money they made from credit card debt and credit card fees that there's a term in economic called zero sum, but it means that like, if I have a piece of pie, you don't have a piece of pie. And like credit card debt and credit card fees are zero sum. There's only one place that that money's coming from and that's user pockets, right? And that's true of basically all, all bank fees. Um, and, and a lot of the, a lot of the, the structure in, in this world. And so, um, you know, banks are, optimized to make sure that they can show as money pro as much profit as possible every you know quarter of the year every 90 days and mm -hmm. um, and so that flows through to how people are charged money the type of people they hire how they incentivize the people that they hire like these are these are machines and Canada has you know the most profitable banks in the world are, are Canadian banks and if you look at where they make a lot of that money, a lot of that money is because we have a really inefficient banking climate where Canadians pay some of the highest bank fees in the world. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, I, like we can go on and on, but like we have more credit card debt per person in the United States. Um, that that money goes like that. That is the revenue model, you know. And and there's a really misaligned incentive between a bank that's trying to sell you credit card fees or credit card debt, independent of whether or not that's a good or bad financial product for you. Mm -hmm. um, so our, our, we think our role at Coho is to, the way that we talk about it is like, how do we bring folks positive some financial products? And so, um, and what that means is not only are we, is it a good product for the user? It's a good product for the business. And, you know, we have a lot of ways that we pressure test whether it's a good product for the user. But one of those ways is we say, would we be proud to recommend this product to somebody we cared about? And you would just never run into that side of thinking in a bank. And that's super problematic. Um, so anyway, that, that's kind of how, how we think about it. But what that allows us to do is think like about a long-term relationship with our users where we're going to make good decisions on their behalf in hopes that they trust us in hopes that when we bring them two, three, four, five products, they know that that's a good product. And they know that bank ABC is probably not a good product. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I love that. And especially since you founded Coho, you know, with the help of, I mean, like you founded it because you saw how much your mom and brother were spending. Like it was always caring about the person, right? Rather than the profits, which I think is so important. Um, because actually, according to Connect, Canadian banks make around $3,200 in profit per household, which is insane. Like that is just so much money. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that stat. Um, look, we, I mean, just to, to double click on it, we're not, uh, you know, 
missionaries. Like we're not, not like we think this is the right way to build a business and the best consumer aligned way to build a business, right? Mm-hmm. Amazon deliver is the largest business in the world or one of them because it delivers an incredible amount of value. Um, and that's what, that's what we're kind of trying to do. $3,200 is nuts. If you consider the fact that, you know, I think the average income for a household in Canada is somewhere around like 50 to $65,000 or something, you know, mm-hmm. that's crazy. Um, and if you look at how banks make money, they don't make that much money off the folks in the middle. They make a lot of money off the wealthy and a lot of money off the poor. Um, and so, you know, it's a fairly, it's, it's super corrosive to a lot of the folks who are on the lower income side of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I feel like those who are in the higher end, like income, obviously don't feel it as much as those in the lower, sadly. <laughs> and also have more sophisticated financial needs. Right? Mm. So it makes sense that you should make more because those people need more diverse portfolios and they, you know, they have different financial needs than somebody making 60K a year. Yeah, that's crazy. So during the pandemic, for example, CBC News reported that Canada's six biggest banks, so TD, CIBC, RBC, National Bank, BMO, and Scotiabank, all made better than expected profits compared to the same time last year before COVID-19 was declared a pandemic. So, but we all know that like Canadians, you know, our own friends and family are all having a hard time financially. So how are big banks still profitable? Because they can't like, because there's no <laughs> counterbalance in the Canadian, there's no competition in the Canadian market, right? Like mm. it's, it's a pretty, one of the most shocking experiences of my professional life. And it, I don't remember, it was probably, I don't know, eight years ago or something like that. Um, and so there's something called the central bank in Canada, and that determines what rates the banks can borrow at. And historically, what would happen is the central bank would, let's say, reduce interest rates by a quarter of a percent, 0.25. Doesn't sound like a lot. It matters a lot. And then that would flow through onto the rest of the banks and the rest of the banks would also pass that quarter of a percent on. And that was it's called fiscal policy. But that was how like the, Fed, the central bank would control one of the levers they had to control spending in the country. The central bank, the Canadian central bank did this. Um, and all six banks the same day decided not to meet the full price reduction that the central bank had done, which is like either all six of them independently arrived at how to price this thing, or they just overrode the central bank together in what is like, feels a lot like a lot of people having like price fixing conversations, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so that was like shocking in and of itself. And then it was shocking that everybody else was just totally okay with it. And I was like, these are the Canadian banks and this is what they do. This is crazy. You know, like the, we, we never gave them that power. Um, and so, so it's a function of, I think of, of like a lack of competition and the fact that they can, and they're, they're, they're market incentivized to, because they keep making money. As you said, they just, you know, made record profits and all that. So why would they stop? They're a business and their obligation is to shareholders. Mm-hmm. Very true. What does it mean when banks are either privately owned or publicly, publicly traded? Not a great deal, not as much as it does for traditional industries. Um, you know, I think in Canada, so two things, I think in Canada, you have to publish your bank statements anyway. So the advantages of staying private are actually a little bit more limited than in other industries because you mm-hmm. still have to publicly disclose and you're still regulated by OSPE and all those kinds of things, um, which is the banking regulator. The, the, the other part though, is that because Canadian banks have done so well and are so lucrative, um, they're a huge part of how people invest in Canada. And then people invest in the banks and then everybody likes the banks because the banks drive good returns, but they drive good returns on the backs of like products and, and 
systems that are super inefficient and super expensive for a mm-hmm. lot of people. Um, so it's like in one hand and out the other, you know? Yeah, for sure. So story time, like I got my first bank account with the bank my parents were at. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, and then a couple of years later, I got a freelance job that was paying me in USD. So I wanted to open another account for my USD funds. Um, and I went with CIBC. So the first bank was RBC. Then I went with CIBC, which was another bank's another bank that my parents were with. I have no idea why they were even with two different banks to this day. Um, And then eventually when I moved out for the first time a couple of years ago, I saw a promo from TD where if you open a checking account with them, you get $300. And since I had a lot of expenses coming up with the move, uh, free $300 sounded great to me. So at one point in my life, I did have three bank accounts with three big banks. Now I'm down to two. Um, But is there a benefit to banking with more than one bank? Uh, yeah, there is for sure. I mean, not the big six, cause I think all of their products are virtually identical, uh, mm-hmm. barring some like opportunistic, you know, $300 or something like that. Um, but you know, for those that have the time and the will, you know, you, you can put all your money in whoever's offering the highest interest rate right now, maybe EQ or Modus bank or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can do your other bank. So there, there's nothing wrong with having like multiple banking relationships. Um, but there's overhead, right? And you need to manage those things. And a lot of these banks, what they do, which is I'm sure exactly what they did with your $300 um, is there's some front-loaded promo fee and then they make that money back. Like they're not in the business of giving away money. And so there's fees and they rely on apathy or they have teaser rates Well, they'll pay you like, you know, a high percentage. And then after six months or 90 days, that percentage is gone knowing that, you know, that the majority of folks will just leave money in there and that they'll eventually make that money back. Um, so it, it's, it's great if you're willing to do the work and, and optimize for it, but not everybody is. And most people think they are and then don't, you know? Yeah, for sure. So what would you say are some potential downsides to being with a big bank? I think that there's no reason to be with a big bank anymore. Not to suggest that Coho is a perfect solution or, or even the best one for the different folks that are listening, but they're not great at anything. Like, you know, they're, so I use Coho as my primary payment mortgage and everything I do out of Coho, obviously. Um, and then I use EQ bank for some savings and stuff like that. And then uh, do my investments elsewhere. All of those things are done worse by big banks. Um, if you look at where, who charges the most bank fees, it's the big banks. If you look at who mm-hmm. pays the least interest on accounts, it's big banks. If you look at whose pro- investment products are most expensive, it's the big banks. Um, and so there's, no, now to be clear, like 10 years ago, there was a reason because branch banking mattered more and you couldn't do to, to 10 years ago with technology, which you can do today. And like, sometimes you needed to go over, but like barring a few, like really outlier cases, I, I don't see the use. And I think the experience is worse and the product is worse. You know, they're generalists. Yeah, for sure. And the fact that there's like only six core banks in Canada and that they have this monopoly is, is kind of crazy. Like what effect does that have on their profits and how much customers spend? It's the reason that they make like that they're the most profitable banks in the world um, mm-hmm. is this monopoly. The the history of this is that the banks got together. One version or like one element of the history is the banks got together and formed something called Interact, uh, which we now know as debit and e-transfer and all these kinds of things. Um, I don't know if this is still true today, but Interact had two pricing models. One for, you know, if you're over a certain threshold, but that just so happened to include the big six banks who are the owners of this thing, and then a different price for everybody else. So credit unions and all the other folks. And so, um, you know, 
if you want to send an e-transfer today or if you want to uh, and, and Interact is, is gradually coming out to be a more independent organization and that's progress. Mm. Um, but there's two pricing tiers predicated on volume. And it's not a coincidence that those two pricing tiers are a function of like, you know, who holds the power in the Canadian banking climate, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And that's true of regulation too. And it's true of the Canadian Bankers Association, which is like just a pure lobby group for banks that, you know, is, a, I think, a really problematic organization. Um, so that they, they take advantage of a monopoly in all the ways that, that people expect, which is that when you lack competition, you get to charge more than, than the value that you deliver. Mm -hmm. Just like, I think many of the cell phone providers here in Canada as well. Like the pattern matching is so easy, right? Look at any, look at the cell phone companies and look at the banks and they have terrible net promoter scores and they're really expensive and they're not progressive and Canadians tolerate them. This podcast is sponsored by Coho. Personal finances can feel as complicated as, well, personal finances. You've asked your parents a billion questions about how to best manage your money. You've even talked to a few financial advisors, but you're still convinced there's something better than the big banks. That's where Coho comes in. Coho is a no BS banking alternative that equips you with a super free, super rewarding checking account. It's connected to a prepaid Visa card chock full of cashback opportunities and a beautifully designed app to help you budget better. You can also earn 1.2% interest on your entire account. That's 30 times what the big banks offer. Pretty sweet, right? So skip the hidden fees and other banking BS. Instead, make it more rewarding to spend and save by signing up for Coho today. Now you didn't ask this, but it's hard for credit unions to compete because they're they don't have the technology edge that I think folks like Coho and, and some of the new players do. And mm-hmm. they don't have the deposits and the banking access that the big banks have. So they, they're behind on infrastructure, behind on technology. And so, you know, how do they compete? How do they stay relevant? I think some are figuring it out and some I don't, don't expect well. Okay, got it. And so when looking at this difference between banks being federal and credit unions being provincial, what does that mean for consumers? I mean, there are things, so like credit unions, one of the big differences is that as a credit union, you're actually a member and an owner in in the credit union. Um, It's almost like a co-op, I believe. Beyond that, you know, I don't know that there is a difference. You know, there's good credit unions out there. that, that do very similar things to the banks. Um, the big ones are Van City, Coast Capital. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there is that much of a difference from a functional user perspective. Okay. Um, credit unions, actually, one thing that is in the advantage of credit unions is uh, there's something on deposits, which is called CDIC insurance, which means that you're, if the bank goes under, up to $100,000 of your money is insured. Mm-hmm. So the government will protect that. Credit unions, that number is not 100,000, it's unlimited. So if you have a million dollars and that credit union goes under, that will still be protected. Um, so it is a bit different. Obviously, not a, fo- a lot of folks have $100,000 lying around to put in a credit <laughs> union or a bank, but beyond okay. that, I don't think there's a deal of difference. Got it. Got it. And then finally, like, what is the difference between big banks and the new digital online banks that have popped up over the years? Like, Tangerine and Simply, like, I actually applied. For a Simply account, um, I think it's still open, but I never actually used it. Um, and also, I believe that like these accounts are anyways owned by big banks, right? So what benefit is there for them to create these new low-fee ones under different branding? 
Uh, I think that the banks are figuring out what their role is with these things. And so, yeah, people look at Tangerine and Simply, and, and these are just brands that are owned by the big banks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is a, you know, they are often lower fee and they are often a higher yield. You know, I don't, I don't think that they're, I don't, I don't think that they're materially different, frankly. Uh, I think, you know, they, there was a time when they were, Tangerine was a real innovator for a long time in Canada. Um, it's was acquired maybe 10 years ago or longer now. Um, haven't done a lot, you know, I think, uh, I think they, they operate under the same incentive structure that the big banks do. So they look different. They feel like a different brand. Mm-hmm. Like they're better. They're better for sure. Are they good? Are they great? You know, that's a judgment call. I don't think so. <laughs> And so let's talk about bank fees because they seem to be really high. Um, I mean, for me personally, with my bank account, if I have $5,000 sitting in it, they waive the $30 fee. Um, and it always just confused me. I'm like, what benefit is there for me, like to, for, to the bank for me to have 5K just sitting in that account? Yeah. Um, so, so banks operate, there's a this is, this is now getting into the, the, the technical nitty gritty of banking, but hopefully this, this makes sense. Banks have something called net interest margin, um, which means, and the bank's net interest margin is usually two and a half percent, give or take. And so what that means is on average for every deposit that they take in, they make two and a half percent. And so, you know, it's this, it's this almost like game of cups, you know, where you like move the ball around <laughs> Um, but the notion is, so you have $5,000 and you put it there, right? The, the bank is going to make two and a half percent off that. Right. So, um, that would be, you know, what's two and a half percent on, I guess it'd be hundred and uh, $125 or something like that. They'll make off you every year. Wow. Uh, you know, so, so they're really happy to do that because they can turn around lend those deposits out and make, you know, that two and a half, uh, that two and a half percent. Now that's okay. And that's what banking is, is they take deposits and then they're, they're an intermediary and then lend those deposits back out and those deposits end up in mortgages and loans and all kinds of useful things. Mm-hmm. The crazy part is that somehow, you know, they leave the user to the customer thinking they're doing them a favor because they're not charging you $30, which they shouldn't have been charging in the first place. They're already making money off your deposits. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yeah. so if you think about it, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, you know, the, the, the banks today will say, if you have, if you don't have less than $5,000, they'll pay you like 0.01 or 0.05% interest, right? Mm-hmm. We just established that they make 250 or like 2.5% off this money, which means even if take like 0.05, which is what they give you, it means that they're making 50 times more off your money than you are. <laughs> and like those, those profit margins don't exist in any, like that's, it's like fountain pop soda stream type profit <laughs> margins where it's like, you know, yeah. um, so it's just, it's just kind of crazy, uh, that they make anywhere between 250 to 50 times more off your own money than you do. And then act like they're doing you a favor by not charging you fees. So basically I've been bamboozled cause I was actually so excited that I've been getting like $2, uh, in, uh, profit every month on my savings account. I was like, wow, like the bank's giving me a free coffee every month, but it's yeah. <laughs> crazy. But it's like you, and look, there's, there's a whole other side of this equation, right? And this is one of these core financial concepts that I think people should understand, but that's, it's called opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. And so if you have this $5,000, which they're going to pay you some nominal amount of money on, right? You're $2 a month. So let's call it 
whatever, $24 a year. Mm-hmm. If you invested that money, if you put it in the market and made 5%, which is a reasonable market return, mm-hmm. you make $250 that year, right? Which is 10 times more than the bank is going to pay just by investing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can put, or you can put it in like something else, which, you know, you can put in GICs or like savings account that pay 1.5, 1.8%. Um, you know, so, so there's just like the opportunity cost of leaving it with the bank. It's not just about the fees that you avoid. It's about the money that you don't make as a result of keeping it. And that's why I think these conversations are just so important to have. And like financial education is key, right. To, to, yeah, make sure that people have an equal opportunity to actually make the most of their money. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So asking for a friend and that friend is me, but can you explain what an annual percentage yield, so APY is and what it means for banks? Yeah, so um, coming back to that conversation we had about interest rates, like that's kind of an, an APY or an annual percentage yield. So um, sometimes it's used in credit cards, it's used on a lot of different products, but it basically means, um, and sometimes it's used on investments and returns, but an APY or on, credit card, it's an APR, annual percentage rate, mm-hmm. um, or auto lending and stuff. It's just the percentage uh, that that will cost you on an annual basis. And very often that percentage is compounded. So if I have $1,000 in credit card debt and 20% interest, that will charge me 20%, so $200, but it compounds monthly. And so what that means is I will pay one twelfth of $200 every, every month. Um, but it it compounds, and, and this is another one of those core financial products or core financial concepts, which is Einstein, this is probably really misquoted, but I think it was Einstein who said compounding is the most powerful force in the world. And it's very true, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe you've seen this, but there's this whole kind of tale where um, I'll do whatever you want. If you give me one grain of rice the first day, two the second, you know, four the third and eight, and it doubles. Um, and before you know it, you have billions of grains of rice as a result of compounding. And so this is like um, both true when people borrow money where, com- where debt compounds and is gets eventually very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also true in investing in getting in the market early um, and trying to just leave that money alone in the market and let it compound as long as possible. Because, you know, um, 5% when you have $10,000 invested in the market, it's $500 a year, that's great. But 5% which has doubled through, um, you know, over a period of 25 years is now, you know, a multiple of your money. It's, it's not 5% every year. It's like, I mean, I do the math, but it's multiples of your money, 10 extra money, three extra money, five extra money. And, and so the ability to leave money alone and, and double is, is super important. I'll, t- <laughs> I'll tell you a trick. It's called the rule of 72. Okay. Um, and so this is another one of those, uh, things. So, it's, it's basically, it's called a heuristic, but it's a, it's a way to simply do math and say, how long will it take me to double? Mm-hmm. And the rule of 72 is you divide that number by, or divide 72 by that number. So if I'm growing at 6% a year and I divide 72 by six, that's 12, right? So that means every 12 years, I will double my money. Okay. Um, so 6% is a reasonable return. If you're going to grow at 10% of year, then you're going to double your money in every 10 in every seven years, right? Mm. That, that's kind of, if you're going to go at 1% of year is every 72 years. So anyway, it's like a simple way to think about if you have $10,000 today, 
you know, your first double turns into 20,000, your next double turns into 40,000, your next double turns into 80,000. And so do you have, you know, three doubles means that you 8X your money rule of 72. I don't know if that works, but um. <laughs> no, I love it. Definitely simplifies it. Um, so why would you say it's important that there are alternatives to big banks? Uh, so I think market competition matters. I think, I think inefficient markets. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm, a, I'm not like a free market absolutist, but market competition matters and you consumers and users benefit from market competition. And if you have banks, which are deliberately and obviously making it more difficult for folks to compete. Um, I think Canadian consumers suffer. And I think we see that in the manifestation of the fee structures that we deal with and the financial products that we deal with here. Um, so, you know, I, I'm actually, I don't, I don't care about the term big bank, little bank, whatever. I just think that market competition is an essential and necessary force in um, generating better financial products for people. Cause once people choose the market will define and it won't be profitable for banks to have bad products. And these banks will not go away. Mm -hmm. They'll probably just adjust their products and be less profitable or figure out where they want to play and where they don't. Um, mm -hmm. and I think consumers benefit from that. Yeah. I feel like it'll definitely keep them accountable and kind of help them to shift their, um, their goals and like, yeah. And like whether they're profiting or like helping people. So that makes sense. Um, so I feel like we covered a lot of ground here. Um, but if you were to condense this episode into one key takeaway, what would it be? I would say like, I would, I would say like, don't be intimidated. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is the financial concept that we've talked about, some of them may be abstract, some are not. Like they're, none of them are too challenging for anybody to figure out, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're, act, they're really simple things like, you know, bank fees, opportunity costs, like, like a few core concepts, um, that, that allow people to understand, uh, cause I think, I think that's the thing that informs choice. And then I think if you get, if you make some decisions, like the price of getting this stuff wrong means that you retire with 30, 40, 50% less money. Like it's not, it's not an abstract concept. That's vacations. That's trip to grandkids. That's, you know, second home, whatever those things are, that's mm -hmm. financial security. And there's, you know, like it, it takes a, a couple hours to come up the curve on some of this stuff, you know, go down a few rabbit rabbit holes and, <laughs> and there's, there's definitely some rabbit holes there. But anyway, that, that's what I would say is like, um, it's not intimidating. Don't be intimidated by it. Anybody can figure it out. Um, there's, there's no secret sauce here and the banks are paid to make it seem complex because complexity is really profitable. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so true. Cause yeah, after this conversation, I definitely feel like way less overwhelmed and you kind of put it into such simple terms that makes someone like me who hated math and finances and all of that, like understand it in a more simple way. So thank you for that. <laughs> great. That's uh, one. <laughs> so to sum it all up, what's the biggest problem with big banks and why should millennials know what's going on behind the scenes? Let me just put it this way. Um, banks are businesses and they are incentivized and run according to the market incentives and they're doing exactly what they think they should do. And I, I get it. Like until Canadian consumers demand more and are willing to push back and, you know, um, and that, that not just consumers, but regulators, government, like in, until there's a, then they're, they're going to keep doing what they're doing. The only way to change these banks' minds is just market incentives.
and market mm -hmm. incentives means like they need to be less profitable or they need to like figure out that this no longer works. Um, now in the meantime, it's fine. Cause we'll keep, I think we can outcompete them on a number of these dimensions and that's like Coho's opportunities too. So, uh, yeah, that, that's what I would say is like, to your point, these are businesses and they're run mm -hmm. according. They're, there's not a long-term view. There's not a long-term view of what's in your best interest or what's right for you. There is a orientation around how much can we get away with, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think millennials are like, we're, we're the generation that's going to change things. So, and I love how like Coho was started by millennial, like for millennials. And it's just, it's the start of something new and big, which is great. <laughs> so let's leave our lis listeners with one last piece of advice. One last piece of advice. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to say three, <laughs> uh, more, love more it. concepts, but like understand opportunity costs, um, understand, and I'll just leave folks with like three terms, opportunity costs, dollar cost averaging, compounding. Um, all of those concepts can be learned, not immediately, but, you know, play with them. Um, there's lots of great resources. Tony Robbins wrote a wonderful book on money. Um, whether you're a Tony Robbins fan or not, his book is good. Um, there's lots of, of, of great books out there that, that are in this, in this vehicle. So anyway, those will be the three concepts, educate yourself, take agency, take accountability. Um, mm -hmm. anybody can do it and it matters. It matters a lot. Yeah. That's awesome. And I think listening to this podcast is a great first step to anyone who wants to, to find out some financial education. Well, thanks again for taking the time to talk to me um, and educate us on everything big banks. And again, congratulations on all that you've done and succeed and um, accomplished so far with Coho. I know that this is just the beginning. Um, so thank you again for your time. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. <laughs> no problem. Big banks definitely care about profit, maybe even more than the needs and interests of the people who are using them. But there are alternative options to banking that are easier to use and put the customer's interests first. In our next episode, we're talking about everything you need to know about credit. So if your credit course sucks, like me, listen up and check out the credit building feature in the Coho app.